And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. This morning, uh, the title of my message is How Christ Transforms Relationships, How Christ Transforms Relationships. And I want to say just a word about our gospel reading. I'll be looking mainly at uh, Philemon this morning, but in, in the gospel reading, Jesus teaches us that one way that he transforms relationships is that he becomes the number one relationship in our life, that he must take priority over all other relationships, even within the family. And, of course, Jesus is just using hyperbole. It's dramatic when he says that if you do not hate your father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, you cannot be my disciple. But he is uh, he's using dramatic language, hyperbole, uh, to get the point across that he must take first place when it comes to your relationships. And this, in the first century, was important for people to hear. As the great crowds were accompanying him, he wants them to know what they might be in for. Because many in the first century had to choose between their, their family or following Christ, or keeping their life or following Christ. Um, and, and that was the case for many Christians lost their family lost their very life uh, for following because of following Jesus Christ. And, and we know that happens even today. So that's one way that Jesus uh, transforms relationships, that he is the first relationship. He is number one. He's the priority. And then that influences our other relationships as well. But I want to look at what Paul says in his letter to Philemon. And I don't know about you, I've never heard, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon preached on Philemon. I know I've never preached one myself. So I've done a lot of uh, work this week um, on trying to understand this passage, this text. I remember when I was in high school, I was 16, 17 years old, a friend and, and I had been... Um, talking to another friend named Tony. And uh, Tony was not a Christian, not raised in a Christian home. And we were trying to share with him about Christ, and we were starting to invite him to our youth group and our church. And um, We were making some progress in this. And then one day I went over to Tony's house and watched a movie with him, and his dad was there in the room as we watched this movie. It was the movie Mississippi Burning. Remember that movie back in the late 80s? And um, it's about these FBI agents who go to Mississippi to investigate the death of three civil rights leaders. Two were Jewish and one was African American. And then the local police began to obstruct this investigation. And it comes to find out that these local police were linked with the KKK. And so the story is about how these agents pursue justice in the face of this opposition. And it obviously, the whole movie raises the problem or the, the painful history of racism in our nation. Well, after that movie was over, Tony's dad turned, and I'm not one of these folks who remembers much about high school. There are certain <laughs> things that I remember, and this stood out. He turned and he looked at me and he said, do you know the Bible supports slavery? And that was obviously a very tense moment and an embarrassing moment for me. I didn't know what to say, 16-year-old. 
And I thought about it later and even this week thinking about what would have motivated him to say that. And I think it was, this is just a guess, but he was not a Christian, and I think he was worried that his son was going to become a Christian. And so he wanted to derail that by embarrassing me and raising this issue of slavery and the Bible. This is one of those issues that is embarrassing for Christians, and it can be a barrier of faith for many people today. Uh, Non-Christians who haven't really given much study to the Bible and its historical context can pick up books which say Christianity supports slavery, and that's enough for them to not want to have anything uh, uh, to do with Christianity. So this, this uh, letter to Philemon from Paul, I think, gives us an opportunity to explore that question because he's writing to Philemon, who was a, a slave owner, and the slave was Onesimus. And I want to talk a little bit about the background to this uh, before we get into the meat of it, because what Paul teaches here in his theology is transformative and explosive in this little letter. And we'll get to that in a moment, but we need to do some background on this. First of all, um, Paul is writing this uh, while he's in prison, and he was writing to Philemon, who was a member of the church in Colossae, uh, the Colossian church, and not only was he a member of the church in Colossians, but he was uh, a wealthy patron of this church, because if you look in your Bible, you don't have it in the, in the bulletin, but in verse 1, he talks about Philemon um, as a beloved fellow worker, and then he references the church in your house. So Philemon was a wealthy Roman citizen who has this church in his house. And like all wealthy Roman citizens in that time period, Philemon had slaves. And there are some important differences between slavery that happened in biblical times and slavery that happened in the new world in America. One is that many slaves in biblical times were captives of war. That was a primary way that someone became a slave in the ancient world. In the new world, we know the terrible history of slave traders kidnapping people from Africa and bringing them here. But there are some texts in the Bible that, that rule out that form of slavery. In fact, the abolitionists, the anti-slavery movement here in America pointed to these texts in the Bible and says, you cannot, look at, you cannot do this if you claim to be a Christian. So one text is 1 Timothy 1.10. It says that anybody who is a slave trader, anybody who kidnaps and enslaves another person is ungodly, and it classifies them with murderers and with the sexually immoral. That's 1 Timothy 1.10. And then there are even texts in the Old Testament that say that if you are kidnapping and enslaving people, then you deserve the death penalty. That's in the Old Testament, Exodus 21.16 and Deuteronomy 24.7. So... Those texts, once again, were used by abolitionists, Christians, who were motivated to see the end of the slave trade. So there were differences. And one of the, the great differences between ancient slavery and what happened here in the New World is that uh, in biblical times it was not 
race-based. It was not based on the hideous idea that slave owners here in America helped to invent and perpetuate, the hideous idea that there is such a thing as racial inferiority. And they use that to rationalize their practice. But in the ancient world, slavery was not connected to race. In fact, most slaves in Rome were European. They were of European descent or from the Mediterranean. Now, uh, there were various reasons why somebody would become a slave. Some, as I said, were captive, uh, captive uh, during war, taken captive during war. Some were kidnapped. Some were enslaved due to debt. Some sold themselves into slavery because of debt. Some sold their children into slavery for financial reasons, because of financial pressure. And another difference was that in the ancient world, in biblical times, slaves, some slaves, depending on where they were in the household, they could be educated, their masters would educate them, and let them take over administration and position, high positions within the household to help the household. And they could also save money to buy their own freedom at a certain point. And that was a goal, of course, of slaves in New Testament time, was to try to buy their freedom, if they could. It probably was a rare occurrence. But nevertheless, although there were these differences between New world slavery and ancient world slavery. And I wish I would have known those differences when I was a 16-year-old boy. Slaves were still slaves in the ancient world. They were still considered property. They were still considered, basically, tools of their master. They could be branded, chained, and sold. They were abused physically and sexually. So Onesimus was a slave of Philemon. And at some point, and we don't know exactly the circumstances, but he broke away from Philemon. Now, there are a couple of theories about why Onesimus broke away from Philemon. One theory is that he was a runaway slave, and he wanted to gain his freedom. And he sought Paul out, or perhaps by divine appointment, he met Paul, and he met Paul in, in Rome where Paul was in jail and he appealed to Paul to intervene and to ask uh, Philemon uh, that, that Philemon might set him free. That's one theory, the, the, the slave running away theory. There's another theory that Philemon, Philemon of course was a Christian leader but he was not living up to his Christian principles in terms of how he was treating his slaves in his household. And so Onesimus went to Paul to intervene and to call Paul to admonish Philemon to live up to his own Christian principles. So those are two different theories. We don't know. They're theories because there's not enough in the text really to say definitively one way or the other. Both of them give kind of different shades to the story, don't they? And there's different evidence for different theories. So We don't know exactly what happened between Onesimus and Philemon, but we do have Paul's response. Thank God that this letter has been reserved for us, uh, preserved for us, and that we can read Paul's response. There are two main theological principles, points at work in this letter. 
One is the principle of unity in the body of Christ. We are one in Christ despite social division. And the other is reconciliation through Christ. It is through reconciliation that we are united together, that those bonds of unity are strengthened. And those two principles are working their way out in this letter as Paul admonishes Philemon. And so first of all, let's look at this principle of unity. We are one in Christ in spite of social divisions. There's a word that provides the foundation for this theme of unity. This word comes up in this letter two times, and it's the word, it's a Greek word, and many of you know it, koinonia, koinonia, which means fellowship, which means a sharing in something together. And, and because we share in this thing together, we are united. There is this bond, there is this sharing. We have this in common. And the koinonia here, of course, is Christ. And so this word pops up a couple of times in this letter, although you can't see it when you're reading it in the English translation, but in verse 6 it pops up, koinonia, where Paul says, take a look there, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, when I first read that early in this week, I thought he's talking about evangelism, the sharing of your faith, that it might be effective. Because when I hear that, I think, when you talk about sharing your faith, you're talking about evangelism. But the word sharing there is the Greek word koinonia, fellowship. And so he's saying to Philemon, I want your fellowship to be more effective. And he's laying the foundation for making the claim that you need to understand, Philemon, that Onesimus is now part of that fellowship. I want you to extend your understanding of fellowship to include Onesimus, your slave. Um, That's how it will be more effective. That's how you will grow in the knowledge of every good thing that is at work in us for the sake of Christ. It's a good thing to understand that Onesimus is now your brother. Extend the fellowship. Expand the koinonia. There's unity now that you have with Onesimus. That wasn't, it seems, wasn't there before. Because what has happened is Onesimus has come to faith in Jesus Christ through his encounter with Paul in prison. Wouldn't you love to have the missionary zeal and the evangelistic gifts that Paul had? I mean, whenever he's in prison, people come to faith. (laughs) People begin to come to faith through interacting with Paul. He must have such, he did, have such zeal and anointing by the Holy Spirit when it came to evangelism. I'd like to have just a percent of that. So Onesimus has come to faith, it seems, through his interaction with Paul because Paul says in verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. I think that's a reference to a, he became a spiritual father. Okay. So there is the unity piece. And um, then comes, as he appeals to this, this unity, and he mentions again uh, Koinonia in verse 17. If you consider me your partner, your Koinonion, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. Okay, we, he's saying, Paul's saying, Philemon, we have this Koinonia, we have this partnership. Now I want you to know that Onesimus has this as well. And then he, he makes this bombshell statement. 
that he wants Philemon to receive Onesimus back. Look at this, verse 16. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. No long, that's the key verse in this, in this letter right there. That's the dramatic verse in six, verse 16. N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, says that Paul is here planting a time bomb that will eventually explode the institution of slavery. Now, Paul did not take on the institution of slavery head on. And we could talk a little bit about, if we had time, about why that might or might not have been the case, why he did not take it on head on, the institution of slavery. But he is calling for the church to transform its understanding of social relationships so that these divisions do not matter anymore and that we recognize one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's a transformative vision that eventually is going to spread from the church into society. Now, it took too long, no doubt about it. It took too long. And people weren't living into these principles as they ought to have. There's a famous anti-slave poem, maybe you recognize it, that abolitionists used to appeal to the conscience of slave owners here in America. It goes like this, Am I not a man and brother? Ought I not then to be free? Sell me not to one another. Take not thus my liberty. Christ died for me as well as thee. Am I not a man and a brother? And Paul is saying to Philemon, take him back as your beloved brother. Consider him no longer a slave, but your beloved brother. Unity. So if you believe this, then of course you can't treat another person as property. You can't dehumanize another person. You can't think that somehow another person is lesser than you based on their color of their skin or their level of education or their possessions or where they live. There is unity in Christ. And the church is to be a new creation where those sorts of divisions break down as we share in this koinonia, in this fellowship. The church is a transformative society because of these principles. So you have unity. And then the second is reconciliation. Reconciliation. Now, under Roman law, Paul has to send Onesimus back to Philemon. Remember Paul's setting. He's in prison. So Onesimus is a slave of Philemon. Paul has to send him back. But when he sends him back, again, he wants him to send him back and be received as a brother. And many people believe that what Paul is ultimately asking Philemon to do is to set Onesimus free because he wants Onesimus to work with him once again. He doesn't come outright to say that, but many people believe that underneath this appeal is this idea of setting Onesimus But something has happened, and now that they're brothers, there has to be reconciliation. Before he can be set free, there has to be reconciliation. And Paul understands it. In the body of Christ, where there's division, where there's rupture, there needs to be reconciliation. And so, in order for that to happen, 
in order for reconciliation to happen, there has to be a price that is paid. Reconciliation is when two people are at odds with one another coming back together. And in order for that to happen, it's often costly. And what it costs us is confession, I was wrong, and then the wrong party saying, I forgive you. Those are the two keys to reconciliation. Confession and forgiveness. It's costly. It's not easy. When you're in um, an argument with your spouse and you have to admit that you were wrong or with a friend, that's not easy to do. It's not easy to eat a slice of humble pie. Um, but, but that's part of the cost of reconciliation. And so in this instance... Paul understands reconciliation needs to happen. It's costly. And then he says this in verse 18. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I will pay the cost for there to be reconciliation. That's what Paul's saying. It's an amazing thing if you think about it, where Paul was. He is in prison. He's already down, but he is, he's making this promise. This is not just... Luster here, he's making a legitimate promise, writing it down. If he owes you anything, charge it to my account. I will pay for it. That's how much he wants them to be reconciled. Paul sees himself as an agent. Listen, an agent of reconciliation. And Paul teaches throughout his writings that because God has reconciled us to himself in Jesus Christ, then we as the church are agents of reconciliation. So you have 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the ministry or the message of reconciliation. God reconciled the world to himself in Christ. Reconciliation is costly. What did it cost God? His only begotten son. What did it cost the son? His life, his blood. On the cross, Jesus tasted God-forsakenness for us. It cost him that. It cost him a taste of hell. The only person who's never deserved hell tasted it for us so that we don't have to suffer separation from God. So, brothers and sisters, no higher price has ever been paid for you or me than this price that God paid through his son for us to be reconciled to him. And because we have been reconciled to God, we are called to carry forward, to carry on this ministry of reconciliation. First of all, and foremost of all, proclaiming to people how they can be reconciled to God through the cross of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, in our relationships, bringing reconciliation so that we might be a sign of that to the watching world. Being an agent of reconciliation in our families and in our workplaces and in our communities and in our churches. This is how Christ transforms relationships even when there is this enormous social barrier and division through the message of unity in Christ, koinonia, and through the ministry of reconciliation. It was an explosive thing that happened in the first century. Now, I was thinking about how we could apply these principles, unity and reconciliation, in our own church, in our own context, in our own life. And I've been thinking and praying about that this week. 
And I think, first, I, I think we need to uh, continue to value the unity that we have in this church and to celebrate that and understand that it is a great value. And when there is division within our own relationships, we need to take initiative to go to the person with whom we have a barrier and go through that process of confession and forgiveness. Pursue reconciliation where there's division. We need to celebrate the diversity that we have in this congregation. I mean, I remember when I first came here, the first couple of years, people would remark to me, they would say, you know, you're a young pastor ministering to an older congregation. How does that work out? And I, you know, I would say, well, you know, we are one in Christ. Yes, there's this age difference and there's cultural differences, but there's a deeper unity. We have in this congregation uh, Anglicans from Africa, and I love that. I love that they are part of our body and that they are taking roles and responsibility in leadership. And so um, we need to celebrate this unity that we have and value it and not let anything come between it. But there's some other ways that I think we can apply these principles and this teaching today. And maybe this turns up the heat just a little bit. So bear with me. You know, today there's modern forms of slavery. And um, globalslaveryindex.org estimates that 21 million to 35 million people are in some form of bondage or slavery today. Isn't that incredible? And just go home and do some research on it, and you can find out all the different ways that this happens. These are people who are in situations they don't want to be in. They're not voluntarily offering their services. But uh, there's all sorts of ways that this happens today. And this is where it might get a little touchy here this morning. One of the great social problems and cultural problems of our day today is pornography. And there's a link between sex slavery and pornography. Those who work in the sex slave industry and those who are working to get people out of the sex slave industry talk about that link. And so when a Christian views pornography, they don't know if the person that they're viewing is there freely or they're under coercion and duress. They don't know if that person's been kidnapped and has to do these things or they're going to be abused. That kind of stuff happens today. And, and this link between sex slavery and pornography also is related to the demand for sex work, the demand for sex trafficking. Pornography, one person who works in this area says, pornography fuels the demand for sex trafficking. And so as Christians, we just need to be aware of, of the insidious nature of, of this. And we need to guard ourselves against it. A Christian, a Christian needs to understand that they could be participating in some way in this if they're viewing pornography. There are a lot of reasons to not view pornography. 
I, I'm, I'm speaking as somebody whose parents were divorced and pornography was, our divorce and pornography was one of the causes. It breaks down families. It turns people into objects. But, but now we know there's also this link between that and the modern sex slave trade. And so we need to teach our children and our grandchildren to stay away from this. And if we are caught up in it, for God's sake, we need to, by the grace of God, get some help and, and try to break free. And there are many resources I can help people with in that regard. There are other ways in which we need to be discerning about how we're consuming and if it is connected in some way to forced labor today. So we want to prize our unity. We want to pursue reconciliation. We want to be discerning about how our consuming practices may or may not be connected to this industry today. But then finally... We as a church, we, we always want to, and I'm, I'm saying something that you all know, but we always want to stand against racism. We, we have to repent of racist attitudes if we have them and then work against racism. In the church, there's, there's not a place for racist kind of jokes or stereotypes. There's no place for that. There's no place for the idea that some ethnic groups are more superior than others. And the sad reality in the United States today is that there are young people who are getting radicalized online. You know these stories, young men who are getting radicalized online into these racist ideology. And some of these men were raised in churches. In uh, April this year, there was that shooting in California at the synagogue a 19-year-old boy who was a member of a Presbyterian church, a conservative Presbyterian church. His dad was the elder. And the church is not to blame for it at all. I mean, the church came out and said, we abhor this. I mean, this is not what we teach. Let's be clear. But then pastors began to say, are we not clear enough when it comes to this? This is a young man who's been in this church his whole life, and he somehow got exposed to these views, and there was nothing in his theology that said this is wrong, this is a sin. Of course, there's a lot of different factors involved in that, but it does raise soul-searching questions uh, for the church today. And that's just one example. We have to be clear that racism is incompatible with Christianity. We have to be crystal clear about that. Incompatible. Instead of racism, we need to promote what Pastor David Anderson calls Gracism. Put a G in front of it. Gracism, which he defines as extending favor to people in spite of their color, class, or culture. Pursue gracism. Promote the dignity of all people, no matter their race. So through the cross of Christ, we are united, we are reconciled, and then we're called to be agents of reconciliation too. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for the unity that we have as a church here, Church of the Resurrection. And I pray that we would continue to prize that unity, work for that unity. And when there are divisions and and, uh, ruptures, help us to pursue the way of reconciliation, the way of the cross. 
thank you for people from various backgrounds that are part of this fellowship and the way that you are melding us, blending us together in this koinonia, in this sharing. And we pray, God, that we could grow in that and we could be a witness to a world that is so often fractured and divided up along so many lines that we might be the kind of church where people look and say, how are those folks together? How are they loving one another? And we can testify to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' holy name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.